Ian told me he was going to be late. Okay, do you guys want a um, word for the final? <laughs> um, okay, someone come up with a word. How about um, collusion with one L? <laughs> collusion with one L for the final. Yeah. You got credit. You know you got credit for rutabaga, right? Yeah. This time it really is going to make a difference. Yeah. So, but I think what that means is I have to take a picture of who's here, so that if anyone not here does it, there. How's that? Okay. Um, well, since it's just us, should we like play pinochle? <laughs> How about poker? Did you think about the riddle about the twelve balls? Has anyone been thinking about that? Yeah, we did. Yeah, and I mentioned it at the very beginning of the term as well. So it's so there's an easier version and a harder version, but this is the harder version. Do you guys know like the riddles about um, uh, what color hat are you wearing? No. Yeah. Yeah. You think? <laughs> well, I, but, so they're all, like they often are the same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's what color hat are you wearing? Yeah. What card are you holding up? Yeah, so I, I think what I'm color right, eyes do you have? Not. Okay. So the, the my father told it to me is what uh, what color hat are you wearing? Um, but the I think the standard way of doing it now is is what color eyes do you have? If you don't know. Okay, so the basic idea is this. Um, yeah, let's do the color eyes. So there's an island where um, there are no mirrors and where no one knows. There are two eye colors. There are two alleles for eye colors, um, blue or brown. And no one knows because there are no mirrors and because the island is in turbid water so you can't actually see your reflection in the water either. No one knows the color of his or her own eyes. Um, the island is made up of perfect reasoners, however, which is to say that they would all do one as the 70% of the average of what everyone else would do. And it's not only that they're perfect reasoners, but they know it's like, remember we said if you know that you're playing with people who are going to think this out to the end, then you should put one. Do you remember that question about the 70% thing? That is that if you're playing with, um, with uh, people who haven't thought about this before, then you're going to think, okay, they will probably come up with an average of 50, and so I should put 35. But then you'll think, oh, well, no, they'll think that too, and they'll come up with an average of 35, so I should put 21. And then you'll think, no, maybe they'll even come up with an average of 21, so I should put 14. But you might think they're not going to go beyond that. Whereas if you do it with people who've played the game before and you know that everyone has played the game before, you need to know a third thing. Not only that you're playing with people who've played the game before, not only is it the case that you played the game with people who've played the game before and understand it, but you know you're playing the game with people who've played it before and understand it, but you need to know a third thing, which is what? that they know that everyone playing the game has played the game before and understands it. Are you feeling better? Good. So that, that is that everyone knows that everyone knows everything about the game. So in those conditions, which is what happens when you play the game with game theorists, what everyone puts is one. Because they know that everyone is going to know that they should be 70 only 70% of the average, but everyone is going to go down for that very reason until it all converges on one. Does that make sense to people? It's important that you understand this, that it's a question of knowing what other people know about the fact that you know that they know and that they know that you know. That is that it's a game of complete information, as it's sometimes called. There's no, there's no lack of information about what other players know. Everyone knows the same thing that you do about the game. Okay, does that make sense to people? If you're playing games with novices, if you play games with newbies, any of you play chess? I think I heard you didn't. Okay, 
So you know what to play. Um, are you are you good? No. Okay. So if you're playing, so we should play for money. No, but if you think about how how sharks work, how um, pool sharks work, how um, chess players in Washington Square Park work, um, they have tricks that work on newbies. They are called traps and swindles. Um, th those are chess games, um, chess terms, traps and swindles. And basically what a swindle is, is you play a move which is actually not the best move, but it's a move that the opponent doesn't have time or um, hasn't uh, already worked out, doesn't know what's behind the move, and therefore falls into a trap. And so if you're playing with a newbie, you will do things that you won't do when you're playing with an expert. And so that's a thing in game theory, too. If you're playing with a newbie, you will make decisions. You'll put down, for example, 35, because if you have absolute brand newbies playing this game, they'll all think the average will be 50, and so they'll all put down 50, and you'll put down 35. But if you play with people who've played it before, they, you may realize that they'll come up with 35 because they saw 35 won the last time they played it, and so they'll figure everyone will put down 35 and they'll put down 21 and so forth. So a game of complete information is you know, you, no one is, in one sense, this is, this is not quite the right definition, but for our purposes, no one knows less than you about the dynamics of the game. And that includes everyone knowing that everyone knows how the game works. Again, what card sharks tend to do, as you probably know, is they play for lower stakes and they lose intentionally. So you'll play with someone who makes stupid mistakes when they're playing a, a game of cards. They will fold even though they have a pair of jacks. They will stay in against someone who has, um, is already showing a pair of jacks because they're really hoping that on the last card they'll um, their, their pair of twos will turn into three twos, and they play badly. And they play badly so that you will be willing to pay, play for higher stakes, and then what happens? You lose a lot. Have any of you ever experienced three-card Monte? It's kind of really hard to find anymore um, because uh, it's quality of life policing, but they, they do it a lot in Paris still. It's, they used to do it all the time in New York. So the way three-card Monte works, do you know how it works? So you will see a person will have a table usually made of a cardboard box, and they will, there will be two black cards and a red card. And what they'll be doing is they'll be moving black and red cards around face down. They'll show you the three cards, and then they'll just move them around. And if you can guess the red card, you bet your $10. If you know which card is the red card, then your money is doubled, um, sometimes tripled, which is, which is correct, but at least doubled. So what happens in three-card Monty, and this happened to me when I was 17, is you will watch the game, and you will be, you'll be able to, you'll just be watching. This is something that's actually extremely relevant to the gambler, which we'll get to soon if a couple more people come. Um, you'll be watching the game, and you will watch, you'll know just where the red card is. Did I say two red cards and one black card? No, I think I said two black cards. You'll know wh where the card you're looking for is. So you'll so the, the person will have a pattern. They'll I bet you could find one online. Thank you. Um, the person will have a pattern and they'll show you the card. They'll put it in the middle. They'll. It's also sometimes called a shell game. That's how they do it on cartoons, where you have a ball underneath a cup. Yeah. So it's the same thing with playing cards, which is a lot easier, both to follow and to do on the street especially if you have to run away if the cops show up. So, um, but it's like the shell game. And what happens there is you're watching another player and you see them bet and they pick the wrong card. And you can't believe it. And then they, they're unhappy about it so they do it again and they bet a second time. And this time the, the guy who's doing, who's running the game does it a little bit faster, but you can still see where the right card is. And so you feel good about yourself so you play. And guess what happens? You lose because the guy who was picking the wrong card was a shill. That is, he's part of the game. 
he's not actually, he looks, he's dressed completely differently from the guy who's running the game. He looks of a different social class. He looks like um, the guy who, who ran this on me, the shill, um, was a middle-aged man who was very well-dressed and who just looked a little bit slow because he was middle-aged. And I was 17, and it was like, what I was thinking is, oh, nuts, this guy is just a little bit too slow to see what the guy running the game is doing, but I can see it, and I think I'll win. So I tried, and um, I lost. And the guy offered me another chance. And he said, and I said, I have no money in my wallet. And he said, tell you what, if that's, if you, I said, I have nothing in my wallet. This is a pointless addition to the anecdote, except it's true. I said, I have nothing in my wallet, which is true. And he said, if that's really true, I'll give you your money back. Show me your wallet. And everyone's saying, ooh, ah, that's amazing. So I pulled out my wallet and showed him my wallet. And I said, no, you have a slip of paper there, you have a... So what he was basically doing was making sure that I was completely broke um, before he was going to let me go. But he knew there was going to be something in my wallet, even if it was just lint. Um, so that was also part of the game. So it was all very honest, except it wasn't. Um, but Penn & Teller, you guys know who Penn & Teller are? So they used to have a show, a totally great show, where they would go around the world. It was magic around the world. And they would go and look. Uh, I mean, they have great shows now. Like, they have a show now about fooling Penn & Teller on YouTube. But they used to have this great show where they would go around the world and they would see tricks done in other cultures. And there was a wonderful one where there was this guy from a village in India where everyone in the village, it's like they learned this in school. They were taught magic tricks. And it was a course that they had in secondary school, maybe even in elementary school. But the entire village did magic tricks. And in the 1950s, a guy from this town came to the United States, and he had so impressed some travelers that they eventually told Ed Sullivan, who did the Ed Sullivan Show, which was one of the, do you guys, have you heard of that? It was one of the big TV shows at the time, um, variety shows. And Ed Sullivan had this guy on, and he was like 17 at the time, and he just completely wowed people with the tricks that he was doing. So Penn and Teller were interested in this, found out about the village, went to the village, and met the person that the village thought was easily the best um, illusionist in the village. Easily the best. So this is a village full of people who were illusionists, and they thought this one guy was easily the best. So Penn and Teller said, okay, show us a trick. And he did, the way you now do the three ball, the, the, the um, shell game is with cotton balls rather than with peas, just because it's easier, but also easier to manipulate. So, so he does just this completely simple trick of, you know, palming the, um, palming the cotton ball, putting it under a different cup, and he does it for Penn and Teller, and he does it right in front of them and says, okay, so, which cup do you think has the ball? He's very proud of himself. He's kind of glowing with pride that he's going to fool Penn and Teller. And so Penn and Teller look at each other, and, you know, this was bullshit. This is not a good trick. He, they, they can't believe that they thought that there was going to be really amazing magic in this town. This was just a, a, a town where they knew a few tricks, but they didn't, you know, <laughs> Penn and Teller or Las Vegas, come on. Um, so, but they don't want to hurt the guy's feelings. So Penn and Teller kind of nod. They're really good at communicating to each other. So they kind of nod. And then Teller points to the cup he's supposed to point to. Because that's how the trick works, is you point to the wrong cup, but you think it's the right cup. So he points to the cup that he's supposed to point to. And the guy is so grateful. The magician is so grateful. He's just got this smile of night beatific, naive happiness that he's fooled Penn and Teller because Teller is pointing to the wrong cup. And he says, pick up the cup. And so Teller picks up the cup, and guess what? The ball is under it. Teller had intentionally picked the wrong cup, and the guy knew that Teller was going to intentionally pick the wrong cup. And so... He made it the right cup without Penn and Teller seeing how he did it. 
and they were utterly astonished. It was like, holy shit. And they loved everything about it. They loved the fact that he had done this to them. They loved the fact that he was relying on them being nice um, by picking the wrong cup. And he loved the, they loved the fact that he knew that they would be impressed when that happened. So it was like he was, he was three steps ahead of them the whole time. And it was just great. It was just, it was just a wonderful moment. And everyone was happy. It was like the, the, the end of the Golden Balls where, um, where Scott of the Antarctic um, makes sure that everyone's in a good mood. So everyone was happy because Teller um, thought he was picking the, he thought the, that the right thing to do was to pick the wrong cup. So the right cup was the wrong cup. And then it turned out that, yay, he got, um, in fact, the right cup, which had been planted that way by the magician in this town. So that is where you have experts playing each other. And if you have experts playing each other, that's a game of total information. That's when everyone knows what everyone else is thinking. So that's an important thing to know. Okay, you want to show one? Uh, yeah, this looks like the other ones are tutorials. Do you agree that this is probably a natural four-minute thing? All right, go for it. Hey, Kevin O'Leary, a.k.a. Mr. Wonder from Shark Tank here. If you're watching this video, that means I'm on... This is the stand that is done all around London. Uh, I first saw this a few years ago when me and my friend Dave were visiting. It happens on this very bridge. Today I'm going to show you how it works. All right, this is the stand. I'm not sure if any of you recognize this yet with the three cards. Anyone seen anything like this before? No, okay, this will be a good lesson then. Here's what happens, right? Here's what we saw. Here's what me and my friend Dave saw. We saw a guy, the dealer, go... Keep your eyes on the queen. The queen is the money card. Remember, the jokers don't pay, but if you keep your eyes on the queen, it could be a lucky day. He mixed up the cards. We saw a guy reach into his wallet, take out about 20 pounds, and slam it down on the card on the left, which was kind of a shame because the guy lost 20 pounds. We watched the same thing happen again, right? Watch real close. We saw the card get mixed up. He said, keep your eyes on the queen. That's the money card. Remember, the jokers don't pay. We saw someone slam 20 pounds down on the card on the right, and uh, he lost again. Right? At this point, my friend Dave was like, this looks like a pretty winnable game. Maybe I should give it a go. Uh, sir, would you mind... It me. It me. What's your name, sorry? Sorry, what's your name? What's your name? Dave. Dave, thank you, Dave. <laughs> um, you can stay where you are. That's fantastic. Dave, this is the money card, all right? So my friend Dave decided to put 20 quid on this game. Keep your eyes on the queen. Remember, the jokers, they don't pay. But if you keep your eyes on the queen, Dave, it might be a lucky day. So nice and easy to start with. Where do you think my friend Dave bet? Which card? In the middle, that's exactly what he did. He put £20 down the middle, and he lost £20. It's unfortunate, but don't worry. The dealer was feeling generous. He decided that you could play again, but he'd make it a little bit easier. So my friend Dave got out another £20. Remember, guys, the game of the game is to keep your eyes on the queen. Remember the queen, and remember that the jokers don't pay. But if you keep your eyes on the queen, it'll be a lucky day. Just two cards for you there, sir. Bada, 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 bada. Where do you think my friend bet? bet? Which one? Well, what do you think my friend Dave did? This one right here, that's what my friend Dave did. He was absolutely wrong, but you, uh, you can realize this by now. It's actually a scam that you can't win, and over here was a great choice. But here's the thing. Um, this is a scam, right? If you ever see people playing this game, do not play it. You can't win, because it doesn't matter Damn. how much you're watching the queen. It doesn't matter if you're paying attention really close or if you're paying attention to the jokers, because no matter which card you choose, you're going to lose every single time. All right? But we didn't know this at the time, so we just, my friend Dave just kept chucking money after money after money. He lost £100 playing this, and then he thought, I'm going to call it a day, I'm going to leave. But just at that moment, something really interesting happened. Somebody on this side tapped the dealer on the shoulder. <laughs> nice. And the dealer turned around. And at that moment, somebody looked a bit like you there, buddy, reached forward, grabbed the queen, and gave it just like a little bit of a bend, like that, right? Now, I've done a bit of an exaggeration so that you guys can see at the back. Um, it was a little bit of a small event, but enough that if you were paying attention, you could keep track of that card, right? So now it meant that this guy over here, he followed the queen, and he put down £100, right? Where, I mean, obviously here, right? And he won £100. Hey, you're a winner. The guy made £100. The same thing happened again with this woman over here. She went forward, and she bet on the card. Obviously, she bet on the bed corner, and she won £100. So things were looking a little bit different. So then Dave was like, I've already lost £100, so now you can play one more time. So Dave took out his wallet, got all the money he had, and decided to play one more time. Here's what happened, ready? Remember, the aim of the game is to keep your eyes on the queen. Remember, the jokers, they don't pay. But if you keep your eyes on the queen, it'll be your lucky day. So Dave, where's my friend Bet? Kind of obvious, right in the middle of the bed card, and he lost another 100 pounds right there, because it's a scam. The one thing you need to know about this game, the one thing you need to know, because a lot of people think, if it's a scam, 
how come the woman over there and the man over there, how come they want some money, right? If it's a scam, how can that happen? Because people do win money in this game. And the way it happens is pretty simple, right? Those people are in on the scam. So they play the game, they win to make you think that the game is winnable. But in reality, the dealer can control the outcome. So you, sir, you're in on it. Doesn't matter if you're keeping track, I'll make you choose the queen. Which card do you think the queen is? This one, this one here? And yeah, you are absolutely correct. Um, as I say, you cannot win this game at all, unless, of course, you're friends with the dealer. <laughs> That's a three card multi scam. Thank all you right. very much. So, yeah, that was me. I was Dave. Um, but actually, the other thing was, I then went back. I, these guys uh, were on the same street every day for like the next month. And so I started just watching rather than playing and figured out who the shills were because they were always there, including that middle-aged man who was the one who tricked me into it. And it looked to me, after I figured out who, was, who, who were shills and who weren't, that they were actually getting less than, mi than minimum wage for running this scam. That is that the number of fake games that they were playing in order to draw someone like me in, it would take them like an hour to get a real um, mark to play. And so there were three people, and they would play for an hour, and they were just faking it. And their crowds would, crowds would form, but no one was playing, and they, so they were just faking it. And after about an hour, someone like me would lose $20. And so that's three people for an hour to make $20. And um, that seemed like they definitely earned it. I was sorry to have lost the $20, but they definitely earned it. So anyhow, that is what the point of this is that in the Indian village, what you have are people who are all experts. So on this island, we're doing a little, I'm sure you know this quiz, but we're doing, I mean this riddle, but people wanted riddles. On this island are perfect reasoners. That is, everyone is both a perfect reasoner and knows that everyone else on the island is a perfect reasoner and knows that everyone on the island knows that everyone on the island is a perfect reasoner. You need that third part, too. Knowing that they're all perfect reasoners isn't enough. They all need to know that everyone else knows that everyone is a perfect reasoner. So they all need to know that they all know the same things. And if they figure out the color of their eyes, they are dead. And that's another rule on the island. I guess I should have mentioned that. That uh, they have to kill themselves if they ever find out their own eye color. That's why they never look into the water. That's why there are no mirrors. It's a weird culture, but, you know, that's by our standards. But who are we to judge? So that is the, um, that, that is the culture on the island. And they either have blue or brown eyes. So there they are on the island. And one day, a stranger comes to town, and they're all gathered together in the town square. And the stranger looks around and says, oh, there are only two eye colors in this town. And they look at each other with horror. And after a few minutes, a large percentage of them kill themselves, and a second after, the rest of the townspeople kill themselves. So why did that happen? So that's a version, right? So here's the very simple version. A parent has two children, and the parent says, I'm going to give my money to the child who can say what color hat she's wearing, what you're going to do is you're going to close your eyes and I'm going to put hats on your head. And I have one black hat and two white hats. So is that mm -hmm. similar? Yeah. I have one black hat and two white hats. So close your eyes. I'm going to put hats on your heads. You can see your sister's hat but not your own hat. And whoever figures out what hat she's wearing first wins. So a second. So he puts, he, she, she puts the hats on the heads of her daughters, and then unblindfolds them. And then after a beat, one of them says, I'm wearing a white hat. So each can see what color hat the other one is wearing, but, after, but can't see the hat on her own head. After a beat, she says, I'm wearing a white hat. So what color hat is the other one wearing? 
No, because it's after a beat. So if she said it immediately, the other one would have to be wearing black. So if there wasn't a beat, if it wasn't all white as soon as she opens her eyes, but they both open their eyes and then there's a pause, what we in screenwriting call a beat. There's a pause. And then she says, I'm wearing a white hat. So what color hat is she seeing? White. Yeah, because she doesn't say it immediately. So if she saw a black hat on her sister's head, she would immediately say white. But she doesn't, because there's only one black hat. So she would immediately say white. But she doesn't. Which means that her sister now sees, can't be seeing a black, she knows her sister can't be seeing a black hat on her head because her sister would have immediately said white. But her sister doesn't immediately say white. So that means she must have a white hat on her head. She can't have a black hat on her head. Okay, does that make sense? So you can do that with any, so the, the principle is one that you can do with any number of hats as long as, the, and, and any number of players. So the, the, the principle is one that you can do with one and two. Um, you can do it with three and two instead. So what you can have is if no one says um, black after two beats, then you know that they haven't gone through that second round of reasoning. If it's three hats versus two rather than two hats versus one, they haven't gone through the second round of reasoning. And so you can do the same thing. So that's what perfect information looks like. Okay, so the 12 ball problem, and then we can start class. The 12 ball problem, no, this is all relevant. And watching, actually, it's extremely relevant um, to talk about watching the gambling because that's a big thing in The Gambler, in Dostoevsky, is the people who are watching the gambling and how they feel about that. So the 12 ball problem, remember, is that you have 11 balls in a balance scale um, I'm sorry, 12 balls in a balance scale. And I gave you the harder version, which I think is more interesting, but I'll give you what's still a hard but an easier version. One of those balls is either heavier or lighter than the other 11. So 11 balls are uniform, and one is either heavier or lighter than the other 11. And you have a balance scale and three weighing. That is, um, everyone knows how a balance scale works. That is, you are measuring two things against each other. They were invented for measuring out quantities of precious metal. That is, you want to be sure, the, ho the whole Archimedes thing that we talked about, you want to be sure that something is gold, so you have to compare its volume to its weight. And to look at its weight you take something of known weight and you balance it against this thing of unknown weight. Back when weed was illegal, people used to use balance scales in their dorm rooms a lot. Um, now you don't have to do it. You can just count on the, what it says on the package. But I am told that back in the day, people used balance scales in their dorm rooms a lot. So you're measuring things against each other. So in this case, what you can do is you can weigh one ball against another ball. So you can guess this is the you can guess this is the odd ball out, the odd ball as we call it, and then weigh it against another ball and see whether they balance each other or not. If they do balance each other, then neither of them is the odd ball. If they don't, then what do you know? That one of them is the odd ball. So this is the simple simple the simplest version. There are twelve balls, you take two. You measure one against each other, against another. One of them is the oddball, but you don't know which one. How do you find out? Because you don't know if, if the oddball is heavier or lighter. So if, if one of them is the oddball, the scale will go like this, but you won't know whether it's because this is too light or whether it's because this is too heavy. Does that make sense to people? So how do you figure out which one it is? Switch out one of them. Switch out one of them. So you take the light one, let's say, and you measure it against another ball, because only one of them is the odd ball, so you measure it against another ball, which is definitely not the odd ball, 
if the light ball is still light, that's the odd ball. If the, if the light, possibly light ball, is the same as one of the other balls, then what do you know? Which is the odd ball? If the light ball is the same as the others, then which is the odd ball? Say it now for extra credit on your final. Too late. You know one of them is the odd ball, right? Yeah, because because one of one of the two is odd. You've just measured one candidate for the odd ball against a ball that you know is not odd because it's only one of the two. One of the two is odd. That means you have ten balls that are fine. So you measure um, one of the possible odd balls against another one of the regular balls. If the possible odd ball is the same as the regular balls, then it's not the odd ball. But since one of the two definitely was the odd ball, it has to be the other one, which is light or heavy. Remember you measured this one, the light one, the possibly light one against a normal one. Now the possibly light one and the normal one turn out to be the same. So the possibly light one is not light, it's normal. The other ball is possibly what? Heavy. So now you know that it's definitely the odd ball, and you know that the way it was going to be odd was by being heavy, so that's the heavy ball. Okay, so that's the simplest version. The um, harder version of the riddle is you have 12 balls, one of them is odd, you have three weighings. So doing it one against another, you're going to run out of weighings really soon. Unless you're lucky, you lose. Can you do it for sure in three weighings? Obviously, the answer is yes. How you do it is not that obvious. Um, I think I told you that one um, person um, I saw solve this riddle. He was a physicist at Harvard, and he solved the riddle in 40 seconds. Another person I knew who was an English professor at Wellesley solved it in four months. Um, <laughs> So it tells you something about um, riddles and um, who's better at solving them. Well, I've seen a variation of this riddle before, but you, where you know that the ball, that the oddball is lighter, but what you do is you split it up into three groups, uh -huh. so three groups of four, balance two of the groups of four against each other. If you... If they balance, you know the third group has the oddball in it. If they don't, you know that one of them has the oddball in it. Mm -hmm. Then you use the third group of four to balance, to test out which one has the oddball in it. And then... So I... Yeah that's, yeah, that's definitely on the right track. Yeah, it's on the right... So I know it with knowing that the oddball is lighter, so you could figure it out with that. Yeah, it's more interesting if you don't know which one is heavier or lighter. It's not, it's, it's one more step, but not one more weighing. Yeah. So it, it's just, you have to do one more manipulation to get it to work. And then the, for me, the really interesting question is, if you don't know how many oddballs there are, can you solve it? In other words, if, you, if there's a majority of balls, which is one weight, and a minority, somewhere between one and five, which is what it would be to be a minority, which is a different weight. Can you figure out how many oddballs there are and which they are? And the answer is yes. Um, and in fact, as soon as I tell you the answer is yes, you know what the answer is. It's that there's one. Because we know we can... So you, don't, you don't know how to solve it for one, but you know you can solve it for one. And so if you can solve it for one, and if there is a solution to the question, how many are there, and if there's a unique solution, the unique solution has to be one. So it can only be solved for one. Um, and that can then go into the riddle itself. Okay, so you asked for riddles, you got them. Um, all right, let's look um, just briefly again at what Smith says about self-command, and then we can leave this. Um, for 
um, good. Um, <clears throat> the um, the reward you don't you, I, I think you don't have to um, find this um, but this is the end of um, what he says about self-command. So the idea is that someone is in pain, is wounded, is in trouble, um, is has a kind of moral right to complain, to scream, not to um, handle what's happening to them, because what's happening to them is really bad. It's a moral right. It's not polite. Um, no one likes being around um, people who are complaining, even if they are complaining with justice. One of the things we learn early on in life is to um, suck it up. But um, nevertheless, the very idea that you should suck su something up um, shows that you have that there is something to suck up. And if there's something to suck up, then sucking it up is a good thing to do because it requires strength of character. It's not clear that you can demand that someone suck, suck something up as a moral demand. It's rather, in a sense, a piece of advice and a moralistic piece of advice, like stop being such a jerk and suck it up. But they have a right to be a jerk. And as you know, when you tell, have you all been in the position of telling someone or wishing someone would suck something up? Has anyone not been in that position? It's like, oh my God, I studied so hard for this exam and I knew it all, but I filled out the wrong box on the Scantron and I got a 99. It's so unfair. What's your attitude? Not if they got a 99 and they're complaining. No, it, 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 does, it probably does measure how close you are to someone. But on the one hand, it is unfair. On the other hand, tough shit. It's not that terrible what happened to you. Um, but they do have a right to say that it's unfair. However, what happened to them is not that terrible. So, you know, oh, I only graduated magna with high honors. Um, my heart bleeds for you. It's so terrible that that would happen. Um, so the idea would be that we sometimes think people are jerks for insisting on fairness in situations where they would actually, where they have a right to insist on fairness, but where the insistence on fairness makes them look silly. And that's interesting, that you have a right to something, but it's silly to demand that right. And that's something that we meet in life all the time. It's something that happens all the time, that someone cuts in front of you in line to get on the subway, let's say, but there are plenty of seats and you make it anyhow. So does it really matter that that person cut in front of you? They shouldn't have done it. They're jerks, but you should content yourself. Well, anyone who has an embarrassing parent, do any of you have embarrassing parents who like will confront people that you really wish they wouldn't confront? Um, I like to think of myself as that kind of parent. Actually, I don't. My father was like that and I just hated it. And the... Um, you know, on the one hand, they're right. They should be confronting people. But, or on the, sorry, they should, some people think they should. Um, on the one hand, they're right that the person deserves confronting. But on the other hand, what's the point? What is, why get into a fight about this? Why do such a thing when it's no big deal? So justice says a person should be confronted for cheating. And reasonable lowering the stakes and making things more pleasant for everyone around, even if there isn't pure fairness and justice, if you do that, says, just, it's all right, so he cut you off. Don't go driving around him and then slowing down like the mass hole that you are. So those are, the, we're always, those are always conflicts between people. So the big time version of this, big time stuff, as Will Ferrell would say, the big time version of this is when someone shows gallantry or 
valiance under extreme pain, under extreme pressure, under extreme need. And so showing that kind of gallantry is what Smith is calling self-command. And he has a long analysis of self-command and a long analysis, I mean, in the book itself, not only in this section of the book. And self-command for Smith is partly comes from imagining how you look to others. And so he talks about an imp, how you would act in front of an impartial spectator, how you would, um, sometimes that impartial spectator he talks about, he calls the man in the breast, that is someone who you carry with you as an imaginary spectator for how you're behaving. So for, in Freud, this will be called the superego. That is, the above me, the thing greater than me, who is watching me and who I carry around with me and who has opinions about my behavior and whom I try to please in behaving well rather than just doing what I want. So Smith, it's related to conscience as the superego is related to conscience, but it's an idea that we carry around with us of an impartial spectator. So the last two paragraphs of the section that I sent you on self-command, the reward which nature bestows upon good behavior under misfortune is thus exactly proportioned to the degree of that good behavior. And the reward is that people will admire you. And someone who um, has a hangnail and doesn't complain about a hangnail will be not admired very much. Um, you know, it's nice. They're not complaining about a hangnail, but it's not that big a deal. But someone who, like um, the Monty Python knight, um, who gets all, what's his name? The, the knight who gets his arms and legs chopped off. Yeah. And he says, tis nothing, tis but a flesh wound. Um, that's a parody of self-command under extraordinary stress. So he's denying that the fact that he's lost his arms and legs is a big deal at all. Yeah? I, like, this is kind of related, but this is, I read this study that I found really shocking, and it's related to this side. Yeah. So apparently all animals show more, like, or like, I don't know, mammals, they just did this with mammals. They show more self-restraint, like they're in some pain. But when there is a male person in the room, they, they found this by act, they show a lot more self-restraint. When, when there's a male person, a male human, a male human in the room, like like even another male animal, so like they're just picking up on hormones. Yeah, they show a lot more self-restraint than when there is a, a you know a female person yeah. or a female uh, working. So, and that and, and their interpretation of that was that they want they're sucking it up because they're afraid of aggression. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. And, that yeah. that is that if you're in a weak position then you want to hide your weakness from, from a being that might be aggressive towards you, whereas a being that might comfort you, um, you don't, or, or give you aid, you may not need to hide that. So that means like there's that element in self, and I think you know, like he brought it up to Smith when he said, like, you know, there's the, you're almost thinking of an enemy who's pretending to be a friend who comes immediately like as soon as you have a, yeah. uh, you know, like, like a terrible thing happening. Oh, I'm so sorry, and they want to see you. Yeah, but then you like I think there's the possibility that you might be seeing your friends as that potential enemy as well. Like because that you tense up and you think it's a potential threat. Yeah. Like there, so there is that I, I love like that the self-restraint idea is one it's beautiful and wonderful, but there is that yeah. Almost, yeah. I think that's true, but it's but it um may uh, w once you have language, all bets are off. That I mean just when you when you're doing evolutionary psychology, language changes everything. And so it may have that as a root. Um, the, the truth is that most animals, especially most um, weaker animals, when they're in pain, don't express it. That is the reason Darwin has a famous line about how if you walk through the woods on a beautiful day, you have no idea the carnage that is occurring at every second around you in life and death struggles. Um, that are comparable to the worst wars that have ever been experienced. You're taking a walk through the woods. It's nice. And all around you is unbelievable carnage. 
That's what Darwin says. One reason we don't know that there's unbelievable carnage all around us is because very few animals will utter cries of pain when they're in pain. And the reason for that is that it attracts predators. That is, if you, if you show that you're in pain, you're showing that you're weak and predators will come get you. So it is very rare. Now, dogs do and cats do, but the reason dogs and cats do is that they're domesticated. Um, I think rabbits are domesticated too. I don't think rabbits in the wild do unless they're about to die. That is, it's only um, in the most extreme experience. You do sometimes hear rabbits screaming in the woods, but it's, it's a last gasp attempt to either get help or um, drive away the predator because of this sudden loud noise. But it's a bad strategy for almost all animals to utter cries of pain. It's, but for humans, it's a good strategy. It's one of the really interesting things about being human is that human babies cry. Uh, some of you may know the Cynthia Ozick story, The Shawl. So, well, it's about a crying baby and what happens if the baby cries in circumstances that are like nature, and it's not good. So uh, it takes place in a concentration camp. So the, but the basic idea is human babies cry, and they do because of evolutionary game theory, because it's actually a good strategy. But for most animals, it's a bad strategy to cry. So self-command, then, is going against a standard human strategy, which is to complain. That is, human complaints work. Complaining works more than it doesn't. Just think, well, I think I told you about my grandmother, right? That you should never ask her how she was? Did I tell you guys that, or it was the other class? She would call up, and if you answered the phone, if you didn't have caller ID, I'd try to answer. If, if I knew it was her, I'd try to talk to her as, like once a week. It was more than enough. But we didn't have caller ID. So she would call, and then she would identify herself, and she would say, how are you? And naturally, when someone says, how are you, you say, fine, thanks, how are you? That's just manners, even if you're not fine. That would be part of Smith's point. You say, fine, thanks, how are you? Um, after many years, I learned not to say the how are you part to her. So fine, thanks, yes, how are you, not so much. Because then she would complain for a very long time. And the reason she would is the complaints work. And so what Smith is saying is that if you show self-command, I think we have, um, yes, we have a minute and a half. That's good. If you show self-command, then you are denying yourself something that does work. So he then goes on, in paroxysms of distress, the wisest and firmest man, in order to preserve his equanimity, is obliged, I imagine, to make a considerable and even a painful exertion. So if you're really in pain, it's hard and actually adds to your pain not to say something. His own natural feeling of his own distress, his own natural view of his own situation, presses hard upon him, and he cannot, without a very great effort, fix his attention upon that of the impartial spectator. So you have to pay attention to what others think. And that's hard if you're in pain. Both views present themselves to him at the same time. His sense of honor as regard to his own dignity directs him to fix his whole attention upon the one view. His natural, his untaught and undisciplined feelings are continually calling it off to the other. So one view is, what will people think of me if I scream? The other view is, I really want to scream. So he has these two things they are competing with him. Um, but he finally shows some self-command. And he gets some compensation for that. So he says, by nature's unalterable laws, he suffers, but he gets to feel self-approbation and the applause of every candidate and impartial spectator. So that's like Mandeville, that if he's in pain but he doesn't say anything, people will admire him. So that is compensation. Nature does not leave him without a recompense. So he gets something for self-command. But then, and this is the crucial difference in Smith, is 
the recompense by her unalterable laws, however, he still suffers, and the recompense which nature bestows, though very considerable, is not sufficient completely to compensate the sufferings which those laws inflict. Neither is it fit that it should. If it did completely compensate them, he could, from self-interest, have no motive for avoiding an accident which must necessarily diminish his utility both to himself and society. So if you were, if the admiration you got for not screaming when you got injured totally compensated for the pain of the injury, everyone go, would go around getting themselves injured so that people would admire them. So Smith's whole point is the compensate, it's against Mandeville, the compensation can't be as much. Okay, the gambler, especially if people come on time, even if they don't, the gambler on Wednesday. And, uh, oh, today's Wednesday. Where does the time go? Okay, we'll figure out the rest of syllabus tomorrow. So decide what you really want to do. Come up with one thing you really want to do for the rest of the term, and we'll figure out the rest of syllabus tomorrow. What do you think about Smith's description of Hume's self-respect? I felt both great admiration and I felt and it convinced me that he was adequately compensated. He just seems like such a, I mean, like hundreds of years later. But, I mean, I, he still remembered. But, I, but he wouldn't give a shit about being remembered hundreds of years later. That's part of what makes him also wonderful. Just the fact yeah. that he wouldn't give a shit. Yeah. Increasing yeah. Yeah. Honey Badger don't care. You know that video? No. Do you guys know Honey Badger? Honey Badger don't care? No, it was an old nature show where there's a honey badger that nothing can hurt a honey badger because of the way its um, uh, surface is designed. And do you know this, Ian? No. But, so just Google YouTube's for honey badger don't care. So it was a nature show, and then there was a guy who did um, a wonderful voiceover for what was just a standard. You know, the nature show was, and then the honey badger will attack the hive. But this guy does a voiceover, which is just totally wonderful. How old is it? Um, it's probably 10 years old. It's not that old, though. Yeah. No, it's definitely on YouTube. Are you waiting for me? Hi. I was just wondering when you would like me to come to um, Can you come to my office hours? Um, tomorrow at what time? Um, no, today. At, can you come at noon today? Um, I have class from... Um, let me just check my screen. Um, from 12 to 2.